Dear Lord, baby Jesus, or as our brothers to the south call you, Jesus, we thank you so much for this bountiful harvest of Domino's, KFC, and the always delicious Taco Bell. I just want to take time to say thank you for my family, my two beautiful, beautiful, handsome, striking sons, Walker and Texas Ranger. Dear Lord, baby Jesus, we also thank you for my wife's father, Chip. We hope that you can use your baby Jesus powers to heal him and his horrible leg. And it smells terrible and the dogs are always mm. bothering with it. Mm. Dear tiny infant Jesus. Hey, we... um, you know, sweetie, Jesus did grow up. You don't always have to call him baby. It's a bit odd and off-putting to pray to a baby. Well, look, I like the Christmas Jesus best and I'm saying grace. When you say grace, you can say it to grown-up Jesus or teenage Jesus or bearded Jesus or whoever you want. You know what I want? I want you to do this grace good so that God will let us win tomorrow. Dear tiny Jesus, in your golden fleece diapers with your tiny little fat balled up fist pawing He was a man, he had a beard. Look, I like the baby version the best, do you hear me? I like to picture Jesus in a tuxedo t-shirt because it says like, I want to be formal, but I'm here to party too. Because I like to party, so I like my Jesus to party. I like to picture Jesus as a ninja fighting off evil samurai. I like to think of Jesus like with giant eagle's wings yeah. and singing lead vocals for Leonard Skinner with like an angel. That might be one of my favorite clips of all time in all of cinema. Not because of it's necessarily uh, not because it's necessarily deep, but because it is hilarious. And I do think that it does get to a good point. And the question that it makes me ask is, how do you like your Jesus? How do you like your Jesus? It's easy for us during this season to really like our Jesus as baby Jesus. He comes into the world as an infant wrapped up snugly in a manger. And two slides from now, if we go to that slide, it says this in the book of Luke, as it tells, back one, it tells us in the book of Luke, it tells us she gave birth to her first child, a son. She wrapped him snugly in strips of cloth and laid him in a manger. We love hearing about this Jesus, right? It's really nice and snugly. It's the arrival of Jesus in infant form. He's so gentle. He's so kind. We can get so intimate with that God. But then... When we celebrate Advent, we also remember that we're also, also remembering and celebrating and yearning for the second arrival of Jesus. Maybe you didn't know that. Jesus also says, I'm going to come back again, and this time I'm not going to come back as a baby. But instead, he says, then everyone will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds with great power and glory. It says in verse 27, and he will send out his angels to gather his chosen ones from all over the world, from the farthest ends of the earth and heaven. Wow. Jesus came once as a baby, but it also says that Jesus is coming again. Jesus promises that. It's kind of crazy. It's kind of scary, too. And as Christians, we're taught to cheer for this. In fact, it's all over the New Testament. In the New Testament, 300 different times, it talks about Jesus coming back. Now, when we talk about Jesus coming back, oftentimes our minds go straight to, Jesus coming back, that must mean the end of the world. Well, I mean, yeah, we're talking about the end times but as one of my favorite theologians put it once, in Christianity, when we talk about the end times, we're talking about the new times. We're talking about a new beginning. We're talking about when the party is just getting started. And so this actually is something that we can look forward to. It's something that can fill us with hope. And that's a good thing. Because I think that a lot of times when we're talking about, uh, when we're talking about Jesus coming back, we're talking about the end of the world, we're kind of scared about that. We try to disguise it with a lot of different stuff. We try to ignore it. 
we're all fine with a lot of different things that Jesus teaches. I've come to forgive sins. I've come to heal you. I've come to give you eternal life. We're cheering for that. We're in the pep talk. We're cheering Jesus on. But then Jesus gets to the part of the pep talk where we're not really sure if we want to clap for that or not. I had a friend on my football team in high school who gave the weirdest pep talks. But for some reason, we put him in front of all of us to do it. I don't know what it was. We'd be standing there, and he'd be standing in front of all of us in, in kind of the entryway of the locker room. And he'd start by saying something like, guys, come on, tonight we're going to win. Like, yeah, we can cheer for that. We're going to give it all we got. <clears throat> yeah, we're going to cheer for that. Come on, rage tonight. <clears throat> yeah, okay. We're going to be animals tonight. Okay, we're going to eat uncooked meat tonight. <sighs> what? <laughs> he would say things like that, and eventually we're just like, I don't know if I'm actually cheering for this or not. We said the Lord's Prayer earlier today. We said, your kingdom come in the Lord's Prayer. Your kingdom come. Do you know what we're praying for when we say that? We are praying for Jesus to come. To make everything right. See, when we're praying for Jesus to come, for Jesus to arrive again, we are cheering for Jesus to come and to make everything right. And that's why in this first week of Advent, we are talking about hope. When we talk about Jesus coming back, we're talking about hope. When we're talking about Jesus arriving, when we're yearning for that, we're talking about hope. But I know it can be kind of scary, so I want to talk about those things. I want to talk about the way that sometimes we deal with it. See, people who aren't Christians and people who are Christians alike, we all don't necessarily feel comfortable about talking about Jesus coming back again. So we deal with it in different ways. For one, we say, well, Jesus, I mean, maybe he didn't really mean that. Maybe he didn't really mean that he'd be coming back and changing everything. After all, Jesus says this on the next slide. It says this again, and it's in Mark chapter 13. He says, I tell you the truth, this generation will not pass uh, from the scene before all these things take place. And that's kind of weird. Like, well, clearly Jesus was just talking in code. Maybe Jesus was misunderstanding the situation. He was just kind of a victim of his context. He didn't really understand the real future of the entire world. Because he said right there, all these things aren't going to, these things are going to take place before this generation passes. Now, I do believe it's important to show you the integrity of the Bible. So I just want to walk you through this really quick and explain what Jesus is talking about when he's saying this. Because there are even some Christian theologians who have come out and said, yeah, so maybe Jesus was just wrong. But it's actually quite simple. See, at the beginning of this passage, Jesus says this in Mark chapter 13. He says, look at these great buildings. Because Jesus was on a walk with his disciples, and his disciples say at the beginning of chapter 13, they say, teacher, look at these magnif magnificent buildings. Look at the impressive stones in these walls. Now Jesus is walking with his disciples and they're saying these things to him because they believe that Jesus has come to save them from their political oppression. Jesus is the Messiah, the anointed one. And that means savior, the one who's come to save. But they had a misunderstanding about how Jesus was going to come save them. So they say, look at these amazing buildings. We're going to rule over them. And Jesus comes back and he says, yes, look at these great buildings, but they will be completely demolished. Not one stone will be left on top of one another. Whoa. That's not great. And so then his disciples ask him in the next verse or just a couple of verses later, they say, tell us, when will this happen? And so Jesus says later in verse 30, when he said, I tell you the truth, this generation will not pass from this scene before that happens. Was Jesus right? Well, he was. Because in AD 70, Titus, as we read from the historian Josephus, 
Titus, the ruler of the emperor, came in and he destroyed Jerusalem. And the buildings fell. Not one stone remained on top of the other. And the generation hadn't passed yet. Just 40 years after Jesus' death. Now, I don't know about you, but I think that it's kind of encouraging to know that Jesus, when he made a prediction and a, pro- and a prophecy, it, it came true. So it's not that Jesus was misled, it's just that in that case, he's talking about that. See, he's pointing to not just that one instance of darkness in difficult times. He's pointing to our darkness and our difficult times too. Specifically, he's mentioning the hard times that his people are going to encounter. And yet, he's also talking about the hard times, I think, that we're going to encounter. Specifically for them, it was their temples and their buildings being destroyed in 70 AD. But for us, it's maybe our way of life being destroyed. Our comfort. Our pattern of life. Falling down. There is comfort, though. There is comfort in knowing that Jesus is going to come back. And so again, Jesus says this in Mark chapter 13. This is in the reading. He says that he's going to be coming on the next slide here. It says, next slide, awesome. Then everyone will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds with great power and glory. So now when we read that, it's not read as something that's filled with fear, but instead something that's filled with hope. Because even though my temples and my buildings and my kingdoms are falling down, Jesus is still coming with power and glory. And when he comes, he's eliminating injustice. He's putting an end to death. He's bringing life for all people. This is something that we can have hope in. Now, it's interesting that Jesus specifically says uh, he comes with great power and glory. See, in, uh, in Genesis chapter 1, 2, and 3, it's talking about creation, and God is walking physically with humanity in the world. There is no injustice. There is no disease. There's no destruction. There's no death. Everything's perfect. And then, humanity, we walk away from God. And so as we walk away from God, there's distance between us and God. And now, there is injustice. There is destruction. There is death. There is pain. It's a result of a fallen and broken world. Some of the destruction and pain in our life is because of what we've done. Some of the destruction and pain of our life is a result of the long, unending series of unfortunate events that have played out throughout human history of walking away from God. And so while God was walking with people, it was perfect. No disease, destruction, injustice, death, any of that. But after that, God had not abandoned his people. Instead, he showed up in specific instances to guide them in places without destruction and death. In fact, in the book of Exodus, God is leading his people out of slavery. We mentioned this briefly a couple weeks ago, but now specifically, here's what's happening as he's leading them out and he's, and, he's, and he's guiding them through the wilderness. It says, God guided them during the day with a pillar of cloud and he provided light at night with a pillar of fire. God is eliminating the darkness. He's eliminating the lostness by providing them his presence. And so in this instance, once again, God is restoring. God's giving them hope with his presence. And so now, once again, 
When we go, when we read Jesus saying in Mark chapter 13, when he talks about coming with full power and glory, coming with clouds, he's sparking an image in these people's minds to say, you know those feelings when you feel God's presence so close to you that it feels like things are okay? When I come, it's not just going to be okay. It's going to be right. I will light up your darkness. I will eliminate your injustice. I will bring life to your death, peace to your despair. Light will prevail. Jesus is promising big things here. Again, he says, now learn a lesson from the fig tree. When its branches sprout, you know that summer is near. Jesus is promising us. He said, see, many of you have been living through a long winter, a long darkness. But when I come, there's new life. There's joy for all of you. There's hope for all of you. See, the second coming, it's not something that's supposed to scare us. Instead, the second coming, the second coming is supposed to lead us to a lot of different things. And primarily, I believe that it changes the way that we see different stuff. The first is it changes the way that we see the world. That means the people around us, but that also means the systems and societies around us. See, maybe for some of us, we're comfortable enough to not really hope that Jesus ever comes back for the end of the world and the restoration of creation and a new beginning. But that's because we live in a specific time and in specific circumstances where sometimes we're able to mute that stuff. Life is okay enough. But God's not coming back to tell us that everything's okay. God's coming back to make everything right. And so maybe we're privileged enough not to see the destruction and pain and injustice and death of the surrounding world that is very real out there. But we need to be able to look beyond our privilege and see that there is a big world out there that does not just need the comfort of Jesus to come in, but they desperately need the life of Jesus to come in because they are living in oppression. They're living in death. They're living in disease. They're living in injustice. Changes the way that we see the world because we see that the world is a broken place that needs a savior. And even if I feel comfortable right now, I'm not okay that I'm just comfortable. It's natural for me to worry about myself, but it's completely unnatural for me to not worry about the rest of humanity. Not to care for them. Not to hope that Jesus will come back for them, even if I don't feel like I really need it. But the truth is, is that we do need it. Jesus says in verse 32 something very shocking about when Jesus comes back. It says this in the next slide. It says, however, no one knows the day or hour when these things will happen. Not even the angels or the son himself knows. Jesus is saying, I don't even know. And so there are two things that we know for sure about Jesus coming back. The first is that it's going to happen. But the second is that nobody knows when. Even though I know that there are a lot of different Christian circles out there that would like to let you believe that they know when, if you just look at history through the last few decades, you know that different Christian circles have written books, uh, uh, series, movies, um, online blogs about when Jesus is going to come back and how they've cracked the code. Listen, if someone says they know, they don't know because Jesus says, I myself, I don't know. And so people break off into all these different kinds of um, uh, branches of uh, premillennialism, postmillennialism. It's kind of exhausting. 
I would get into all of that today, but truly it is exhausting. But also because uh, if you tune into our online service, if you want to check out the sermon that's being preached at our West Wayne campus, Pastor Richard Webb is going deeper into some of the different studies on premillennialism, postmillennialism, premillennial dispensationalism, all that different stuff. If you're really interested by that stuff and all the different theories um, about uh, Jesus' second coming and when and how people think that uh, ends up shaping up and all that different stuff, go ahead and take a look at that. Uh, but for today, I'll just tell you this. At Hope, we like to joke that we are pan-millennialists, meaning that we believe that it's all going to pan out in the end because God wins. That doesn't mean that it doesn't matter. It does matter. It absolutely matters because Jesus says that it's going to happen, but he does say that we don't know when. And because we don't know when, that doesn't just change the way that we see the world. It also changes the way that we see me as in yourself. Because Jesus says, be on guard. Stay alert. Be honest. Have a real evaluation about who you are. It doesn't mean obsess. It doesn't mean stop living your life because you're paranoid about Jesus showing up and turning on the lights when you're doing something that you're not supposed to be doing. Instead, there's one theologian who wrote that as Christians, we ought to live our lives in the same perspective that someone who's nearing the end of their life lives their lives. They shouldn't stop living because they know that they're closer to death. Instead, they should simply live with that knowledge in mind. We know that Jesus is coming back, but because Jesus coming back gives us hope, it doesn't stop us from living. Instead, it inspires us to give hope to the rest of the world. Because Jesus is coming back, we don't give up hope on the world. Instead, because Jesus is coming back, we share hope with the world. We have hope for the world. Be alert. It also means that we can't get too comfortable sometimes with making excuses because truth be told, sometimes we do think that it's okay about the bad things that I'm doing in my life because Jesus is just going to forgive me. Yes, he is going to forgive you. But truth be told, you don't know when God's going to come back. I'm not saying that to scare you. I'm saying that to encourage you. To be alert, to be on guard, to be ready, to be glorifying God. Let's be alert. Let's be on guard. Be honest about ourselves. You know what it means to be honest about yourself? I believe that it means to have integrity. It means not to justify bad means for a good end. Well, see, I'm doing this thing because it's going to bring to it. It's going to end up in a good thing. Look, Jesus could come back at any time. So what if that bad thing is the last thing? Again, it doesn't mean, it does not mean that God won't forgive me. But it does mean that there's no reason whatsoever for me to justify my bad means for, the, for a good end thing. Because Jesus comes and he wants to make all things good, period. So be on guard. Stay alert. And I do just want to be really careful here because I think that this is very important. Um, because a lot of us think that God's just out to get us and he's just trying to chase us down and, and, and hurt us and all that stuff. Um, and find our mistake, turn on the light, and see what we've done wrong. When I was in first grade, uh, my art teacher, Mr. Whitehead, I'll never forget his name, Mr. Whitehead, which I think is hilarious. Uh, and uh, yeah, I don't know. I didn't get that humor then, but now it's funny to me now. Uh, yeah, I don't know. The computer teacher was Mr. Pimple. Just kidding. Anyway, so Mr. Whitehead, he had this castle that he had been working on for 13 years as an art teacher. 
He was a really good artist. And he made this castle out of tiny little cereal box cardboard pieces that he'd rip off. I mean, truly, like the size of a period at the end of a sentence. And it was huge. I mean, it was like 15 feet long, like five feet tall. He'd been working on this for, for, for 13 years. It went around like this giant square. It was huge. And he always let us observe it. And sometimes he'd kind of let us help with it. And one day he told me, Danny, I'd like you to carry this piece of the castle. Would you mind taking it to that part of the room over there? I'm like, yeah, sure. And as I'm carrying it, I stumbled and I tripped and I dropped this piece of the castle. And as a six-year-old, I'm freaking out. I think it's the end of the world. I mean, I was six years old. He's been working on this for over twice in my lifetime. And you know what's funny? Instead of like going to him and just saying what I had done, in my six-year-old mind, the only thing that made sense was I ran out of the classroom and I started heading toward the principal's office because I thought I needed to turn myself in because I'd done something so terrible. But here's the truth about Jesus' second coming. It changes the way that we see the world, knowing that this world does desperately need Jesus to come back and make things right. It changes the way that we see ourselves and leads us to living a life of integrity, but also changes the way that we see forgiveness. Because Jesus comes back to not just make things okay. If Jesus was just coming back to make things okay, we'd be in trouble. It says this in Psalm chapter 130. It says, Lord, if you kept a record of our sins, who, O oh Lord, could ever survive? If God's coming back just to make things okay, and he has to eliminate the things that aren't okay, we're in trouble. But instead it says you offer forgiveness. God's not coming back just to make things okay. God's coming back to make things right. He's coming back to make everything that's gone wrong right. He's coming back to make everything that's gone dark light. He's come back to make everything that has died live. It's forgiveness. And that changes the way that not only we receive forgiveness, but also the way that we share forgiveness. As I was running down to the principal's office, ready to admit my shame, um, <laughs> and I'm like turning a corner. I don't think it should surprise me. Mr. Whitehead was chasing me down the hallway. And I'm like, oh great, he's going to tackle me. He's going to hurt me. No, of course not. It's like, I'm not mad at you. I'm not mad at you. Come back to class. Maybe you're scared because you think that when Jesus comes back, he's going to turn on the light and find something wrong about you and send you to the principal's office. And so you just kindly escorted yourself that way to get a head start. No, Jesus is chasing you down when you're running toward your pain, running toward your punishment. And Jesus says, no, look at me. I'll make it right. I will forgive you. See, Jesus is coming back for the world and for me because he's the only one who can sit on the throne for you and for me. When somebody does me wrong, maybe it's the same thing for you. When somebody does you wrong, I feel like oftentimes our first inclination is to jump to the seat of judgment. To assume the worst in that person. To be so cynical. 
to be certain that they must have just been trying to ruin our lives. We don't know their story. We don't know everything that's happened that led them to make that decision. Truth be told, the only person who has the ability to sit on that throne of judgment is God. God's the only one who knows what that person's been through. And as God sits in the seat of judgment, he offers forgiveness. Are you ready for the hope? See, it's scary because Jesus prophesies in Mark chapter 13. Remember, his prophecies come through, come true. It says, the sun will be darkened and the powers in the heavens will be shaken. Ooh, that's scary. Jesus is talking about end of the world stuff. It's scary. It's dark. Earthquakes. It says that in Mark chapter 13, just two chapters later in Mark chapter 15, it says this about when Jesus is on the cross. At noon, darkness fell across the whole land until three o'clock. Jesus is on the cross, and that's when the darkness comes. It says in the book of Matthew that the earth began to shake. It sounds like Judgment Day. It sounds like the end of the world and the beginning of new things. It was. You see, Jesus, in forgiving us, receives and fights against the things that we cannot fight against ourselves. The darkness. The trembling of the earth. This entire year that's shaken us to our core. You see, he's come to make things right. He hasn't come to flip the lights on to scare you and shame you. He's come to flip the lights on to reveal to you the things that you haven't seen. And things will start to make sense then. The mysteries of the universe will be uncovered. That's such good news for us. It was a couple weeks ago when I was getting ready in our apartment before I came here and it was dark and in our apartment because I was trying to be polite to my wife and not like wake her up because we get here pretty early and... I mean, it's like really early, right? And so it's dark outside still, and it's dark in our apartment. And then by the time that I get here and I look down at my clothes and I'm standing out in the daylight, I realize, oh man, my clothes are really wrinkled. So I had to borrow a steamer from somebody to steam it out. It's funny, my eyes had adjusted to the darkness in our apartment, but the light revealed the wrinkles. Of course, there was a solution to it. I mean, the light didn't make me look at myself and think, you are pathetic. No, it just made me realize, okay, I need to straighten this out. The book of Jeremiah, it's beautiful. The book of Jeremiah, God's talking to the people about exile. Because the people of Israel, they too have experienced something that was very similar to what Jesus had prophesied about their temples and buildings falling. The people of Israel, God's people, they had lost everything. They were exiled. They were sent away from their home. Some of it, quite frankly, was a lot to do with their own fault. Their terrible political government-type decisions. More importantly, the way that they ran away from God and refused to receive his word. But God promises them this. 
found grace out in the desert. And they're looking for a place to rest. They met God. Looking for them. God told them, I've never quit loving you. And I never will. And the next verse says, expect love, love, and more love. Expect this kind of love. Because God has loved you with an unfailing love. That's how God draws us to himself. Through love. And love is the thing that God's going to use to make things right when Jesus returns. It was funny, a few days had passed and I'm back in the art classroom and I'm ashamed and I don't want to be there because I'm worried that Mr. Whitehead will never trust me with his castle again, right? Mr. Whitehead calls me and he's like, hey Danny, come here, I want you to see this. It's like, hey, see this? It was the corner of the castle that I was supposed to carry and the corner of the castle that I had dropped and broken. But it looked like it had been made new. He fixed it. He made it right. And I was filled with joy. I realized I never had to lose hope. It's a nice little innocent story about art class from when I was six years old, but on a much deeper level, cracks in your soul. The holes in your heart. Your broken relationships. This upside down world. Jesus is coming back. And when we're out in the wilderness looking for solutions to fix all of these things, we will find him looking for us. Not just to make it okay, but to make it right. He will make everything right. Amen.